Hello, and welcome to The Chess Circuit, a podcast all about the wonderful game of chess. My name is Adam Ralph, and I'm your host. Today, Ben Graff and I talk to international master John Donaldson from the USA. John is not just a chess master, but also a historian, and has just published Bobby Fischer and His World, The Man, The Player, The Riddle, and The Colourful Characters Who Surrounded Him. John is one of those guests who's just so easy to interview. He has so many wonderful anecdotes and meticulously researched and surprising facts at his fingertips. We just needed to press record and occasionally ask a few questions. How did Bobby make such an incredible leap in strength between the summer of 1955 and 1958? Thanks to John for being such an amazing guest. I hope we can have him on again soon. It's just great to talk to John. Um, John, tell us a bit about your chess and, and your your writing career for those of those of us who don't know you so well. Well, I, I started playing like uh, many chess players in 1972, and uh, I think it would come as no surprise that it was the uh, Fischer-Spassky match that uh, got me started. And I grew up in a town uh, south of Seattle in the state of Washington. Uh, it was a town called Tacoma, Tacoma and uh, we had a chess club that had about 150 members as a result of this heightened interest because of the Fisher-Spassky match. And I was very fortunate that there was a club like that. And uh, uh, I just loved it. And uh, uh, many of the people that I met at that club, you know, gosh, almost 50 years ago, are still very good friends. And uh, I, uh, I would say that uh, my lifelong interest in chess is, is pretty much due to, uh, to that match and, and to that chess club. And uh, I, I went to University of Washington and I got a degree in history. And uh, somewhere along the way, when I was uh, working on my degree, I realized that I would uh, probably be spending most of my adult life uh, as a chess player. And uh, I've been fortunate throughout most of my adult life to have been able to do that. And I uh, worked at a variety of magazines. There was uh, one way back in the day, it was uh, Players Chess News from Los Angeles in the uh, mid eighties. And later there was uh, Yasser Sarawan's uh, Inside Chess. Mm. And then in 1998, I took a position at the Mechanics Institute uh, Chess Club. It's the uh, oldest chess club in uh, the United States. Uh, it's in San Francisco, and it was founded in uh, 1854. And I worked there for 20 years. And uh, uh, besides writing for the uh, uh, various magazines and uh, working for uh, the mechanics, I've uh, you know written a number of books probably over 30 by now. And uh, I've also uh, been active as uh, the uh, captain for the uh, US Olympiad team. Um, and and you know, also for the world team championships, I've coached the, uh, I shouldn't say coached, captain the US team. Uh, I also uh, love to play. I've uh, uh, how shall we phrase it? Uh, close, but not <laughs> that close to uh, the grandmaster title. I have two norms and a peak fide wow. rating 
67. So I got reasonably close, but no, it wasn't like uh, I was uh, uh, Danny uh, Gormley, you know, with like uh, 15 half point misses. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that sort of situation. So it's not like I, uh, you know, gnashing my teeth every night that I didn't make it. I think, I, th I think, John, I think, honestly, you'd be the, your achievements would be the envy of 99.99% of um, chess players, for sure. John, I, I, as you know, I mean, I, I, re I reviewed um, Bobby Fisher and his wealth for, for Chess Magazine, and, you know, I absolutely loved the book, and, you know, I thought it was a really, really great, great work, and, you know, it's just it's an absolute ace to have read it and to be talking to you today. And I, ju and I, just, I just wondered, kind of, sort of, you know, what was it that made you decide to actually to write this particular book? And I think as well, one of the things I was struck by, which would be interesting if you could elaborate on a bit, was, you know, there are so many books that have been written about Fisher, but the thing I really liked about your book was you take a very different approach to Fisher. You know, it's not a conventional retelling. You go to places where other books haven't gone. I wondered if maybe you could just say a little bit about that. Well, I think that, uh, you know, like many players of uh, my age, you know, the Fisher-Spassky match got them started in their chess. Mm. And it probably also got them really curious about Fisher because, you know, we all started playing. And when I say I, I mean American players like uh, Yasser Sarawan, Joel Benjamin, mm. Larry Hutchinson, John Fedorowicz, uh, Ron Henley, uh, Jonathan Tisdall, Michael Rode. I'm, I'm leaving out some grandmasters, but you kind of mm. get the picture. Mm. There were just a lot of strong players that came along. Well, the thing that almost all of us have in common uh, with just a very few exceptions is that we never met Bobby Fisher. Mm -hmm. and I made him, you know, kind of an intriguing figure even more than he would have been otherwise. And mm -hmm. I read uh, uh, Frank Brady's, uh, I refer to it as a trilogy. He uh, wrote uh, Profile of a Prodigy. And then there was a second edition, which was markedly different than the first. And then there was uh, Endgame. And when I read those three books, you know, I learned so much about Fisher because Brady knew him well mm. at a very important uh, time in Bobby's life. But I still had like all these questions. And uh, I had also had the privilege of knowing people that did know Bobby. Uh, I worked with uh, the late Steve Brandwine, who spent quite a bit of time with him, uh, both in the 1960s and uh, when Fisher uh, uh, visited San Francisco for several months in uh, the early 80s, uh, he stayed at the same house where Brandwine was living. So these guys, you know, Yasser and Steve, they would tell me stories and some of the New Yorkers I would visit, they would, you know, regale me with other accounts. And I just, I, you know, I just became very curious because there were a lot of inconsistencies between what, uh, you know, the popular account of Bobby was like and what he was, the way they saw him. And so I, I wanted to try to, uh, to reconcile those in my mind. And so that kind of got me started. And another thing that got me kind of, you know, interested in maybe writing a book on the subject was that uh, American chess in the 1950s, you know, it, it, it wasn't that far off uh, from when I started playing in 1972, but it was really a different world. I mean, to put it in perspective, the USC was so poor that when they held the Chess Olympiad in 1954 and again in 1956, the U.S. didn't field the team. They didn't have money to send a team. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, they, until the Fisher boom, which started, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, the Federation the total membership was under 10,000. And it was really closer to five when uh, Bobby was uh, starting to play. But despite that, they had always had like, you know, six grandmasters that were probably rated in the top 30 players in the world at the time. So they always had a very high level and they were always living in New York. And they also had uh, these uh, people working for the Federation were, you know, you know if, if not an expert in one particular area, were definitely uh, a master of many trades. And so you see people like uh, uh, Brady working as the business manager, mm -hmm. putting out the Chess Life magazine and organizing tournaments and just, you know, doing an amazing number of things at a very high level. And so I decided that when I did get the idea to write the book that I would try to make it a bit broader in scope, that it wouldn't just be yeah. Bobby, but also the people that influenced yeah. him, people that were around and played a major role in American chess at the time. And I think, I think I really, really shines, shines through. I mean, it just seems like such a gigantic task. I mean, how, how, how do you start approaching something like that, John? I mean, that, what was your plan of attack? <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I started off and I, uh, I, I didn't do it quite as systematically as I would have liked to because I, at a certain point, I actually decided to uh, go in several directions. And one of them was to have, you know, sort of a biographical work, which, which is sort of what I've written, but not, not exactly so. But then I also decided that I would try to uh, collect all of his uh, non-tournament games. And uh, that would be a challenge because, for example, you recall that in uh, about 1989, when there was the horrible uh, storage locker fiasco, uh, where all Fisher's belongings were uh, auctioned off for failure to pay the, uh, the, the monthly rent for his storage facility, uh, one of the things that Bobby screamed, uh, and quite understandably, uh, loudest about was all the uh, missing score sheets from his 1971 tour of Argentina. This was a, a tour that took the better part of a month. Uh, he visited approximately 20 cities in Argentina. Each one, he played 20 boards. There were players ranging in strings from maybe 1,800 to 2,400. And he made it a condition of the exhibition that everybody would need to use carbon score sheet and he would get the top half of the carbons. And as a result, you know, he would have a very unusual situation for a simul giver. He would actually have a record of all the games he during the, uh, the tour. And he mentioned uh, that these games were very instructive because the uh, Argentinian players were sort of cut off from modern theory. I mean, in those days, you know, in internet magazines coming very out very infrequently. And the result was that he realized that these guys, they could fight really well. They were good practical players, but, you know, it, it behooved him to try to uh, get as big an advantage from the opening as possible. And so he said there were constructive miniature games and, and, and really uh, uh, a lot of uh, material worth preserving. So I thought, well, I should try to uh, to find all these games, and I actually succeeded in in uh, reconstructing his tour. It's that's not in this particular book. I mean, 
this book got to like, I don't know, like 660 pages. And, and <laughs> yeah. at some point it had to uh, stop. Uh, but, uh, and, and yes, I, I do have another uh, planned follow-up volume to this one of, of similar size. Um, so in answer to your question, Ben, uh, for a long time, I was kind of, you know, torn exactly uh, the direction I was going to go in because there's just so much material on Fisher. Even though there's all these books that have been written, uh, probably a lot of material has only recently uh, surfaced. I mean, or it was there, but it wasn't easy to get to. For example, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, newspaper columns uh, that there's a a website called uh, bobbyfisherblogspot.com. Somebody's taken the, uh, uh, the time and, uh, and done a, a really uh, a great service in uh, finding all these newspaper articles uh, in American papers uh, during Fisher's life. And uh, uh, it was very, very helpful. I mean, I was able to pinpoint Fisher's activities in Moscow in uh, 1958 prior to is going to the inner zonal and uh, uh, and it was it was really quite remarkable. I, I learned that the uh, communication was so bad in those days that the Soviets only knew that he was going to be coming to Moscow. He was like several weeks early, uh, you know, hours before his arrival, and uh, you know those are the sort of things that you were you know not likely to find in, in chess magazines. You know, newspapers kind of had a different. Uh, emphasis on what they considered important. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, but one thing I can warn anybody in uh, doing research on Bobby Fisher is that once you jump down the rabbit hole, it's not <laughs> to come up for light. It's just like, it just keeps going on and on. Uh, you know, it, there's seemingly, you know, he, I mean, how likely is it that you would believe that he played in a major tennis tournament uh, in June, early June of 1972, you know, with a world championship match, you know, uh, right in the headline. He played in a, 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 a tennis tournament for sports stars. And wow. uh, amongst the people that were competing in this event were uh, Mark Spitz, the great Olympic swimmer. Uh, there was Joe Frazier, I think most of your listeners would know, the great boxer that fought Muhammad Ali uh, on numerous occasions. Uh, there are others that are more like familiar to an American audience, uh, uh, like Deacon Jones was a great football player and there was uh, Marty LaCorey was a great distance runner, but there were all these uh, sports stars and in among them was Bobby Fischer. And uh, uh, he was particularly keen on tennis in those days. And one thing I just recently learned is that uh, several times he showed up late for his candidates matches against both Taiwan and against uh, Larson because literally an hour before the, uh, the game was going to be played, he was off playing tennis, which is, you know, kind of a odd thing to get one's head around. You know, I mean, it doesn't quite square in with you about Vinick's, you know, 15 minute walk before the game to calm your head. Uh, so, uh, you know, Fisher is just such a quirky, you know, one of a kind. I mean, uh, uh, 
his meeting up with Patti Smith when he was in Iceland, you know, the, the godmother of punk, uh, 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 you know, what are, what are the odds that those two would meet and that they'd actually already met in the 1960s, you know, in a bookstore that she was working in, you know, and, you know, before her, she became famous and, and Bobby's first book, uh, Bobby Fisher teaches chess had, uh, had just come out. And, you know, he, he was uh, making the rounds of the local New York bookstore right. and, uh, and bumped into her there. So, I mean, if you try to describe Fisher's life, I, I think, uh, you know, truth is definitely uh, uh, stranger than fiction. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing you need when you're a chess historian or maybe a, a historian in general is is time to do that to do the uh, subject justice. I know you wrote um, a book about his 1964 uh, simul tour. What's that called? That was Legend on the Road, I think. So would that will there be a, a follow up to this book detailing his there, later simuls? Yes, there is. In fact, uh, there is one already out in uh, ebook form, and. Uh, well, to give you an idea about that 64 tour, uh, you know, he uh, uh, started off in uh, the beginning of, uh, I want to say like late January or early February, and he made a couple of quick visits to uh, Eastern Canada, but then he, he crisscrossed the United States and uh, it took to the end of May to finish this exhibition. I wrote the first edition of that book, I would say back in... Uh, Oh, in the mid '90s, mm. there was, uh, you know, it was kind of sketchy exactly where he had been, and and and, uh, you know, there were some games that had, had come from it, but very few. Uh, and I was able to, you know, do a partial partial reconstruction of it. And then the second edition came out, and about a decade later, and I was able to add substantially more. But the latest edition, I have like, I, I mean, it's. I think maybe like about 250 games from the exhibition and uh you know starting out with about a dozen so i feel like i owe my history professors at the university of washington and in particular the late uh, carl solberg uh, a thank you for uh <laughs> me and uh well one of the things i really liked about uh, doing the research for that tour was that uh that was fisher before he went to the dark side <laughs> some extent yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, uh as a result um uh, it's just very you know very heartening you you read uh, i i had many people said it was one of the greatest times in their life they they hosted him he's just like a normal guy mm. albeit he played chess rather well uh, you know and he just had this 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 you know passion i mean he was uh in the process of turning 21 during the, the tour. So, you know, he's still a young, young guy and mm. uh, very approachable and, and, and very much open to sharing meals with others and staying at people's homes and getting rides from people, you know, quite a contrast to uh, his uh, later life. Uh, so uh, there will be, and, and the second book I've planned, the follow-up to this one will incorporate uh, material from, from that book. Mm. And it will also deal with, uh, uh, on exhibition games. It will also do with, deal with his writings. Uh, I touched upon that some in uh, 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 Bobby Fisher and His World, but I'll be dealing more with that in uh, this uh, uh, follow-up uh, book. 
I, yeah, and it's just fascinating. Some of the details in your book, John, and some of the things like when he wrote into a computer, computer chess magazine, and and, and, and so on, and just just like little li some of the little details that you just you just wouldn't know. I mean, I, I just thought it was amazing what what I learned. Really, can I can I ask you two two very different questions? Because um, I mean, you you thought about Bobby Fischer, you know, all chess players think about him a lot, John, but you thought about him more than more than most, I would think. And one from the start of his career, one from the end. And from the start of his career, it's impossible. But what what was the secret? How did this kid put on 900, you know, rating points in, I don't know, what, what two years to go from, in effect, you know, a decent but unexceptional club player? You know, there are records of him playing in tournaments as a junior and coming halfway up and whatever. He wasn't a standout prodigy to being, you know, the best player on the planet. How did he do that at the start? Maybe I'll ask that one first, and then I'll ask the second one. Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is that, uh, of course, nowadays, uh, one of the greatest things I would say that's occurred in uh, uh, my lifetime, and certainly in the last 20 years, is how uh, uh, great chess players don't just come from, uh, you know, Europe and, you know, former Soviet Union and, and the United States. Now they come from everywhere. And obviously the, uh, you know, uh, we can take modern technology for, you know, democratizing the process. But in the 1950s, there wasn't that option. And as I mentioned in the book, I very much doubt that Bobby Fischer would have become Bobby Fischer if he hadn't lived in New York. Mm -hmm. And point to an example, another junior player in the United States was coming up at roughly the same time. Uh, Larry Remlinger, who was a tremendous, uh, was more promising at... Uh, you know, ages, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 than Bobby was, but who rapidly got left in the dust. And I think uh, a certain part of the reason for that was the fact that he lived in Los Angeles and was a very big city even then. It just didn't have the chess culture uh, that New York did. I mean, if you looked at the U.S. championships that were held uh, throughout the 50s and, and much of the 1960s, the vast majority of players came from, from New York. And uh, uh, it happens that uh, for, uh, for Bobby, uh, you know, you think of New York as a really, you know, just huge place. I mean, it's, you know, just, you know, millions and millions of people, but, but his world in New York was actually pretty compact. I mean, if you were to look on uh, Google Maps, you would see that all the places that he was associated with and all the places that he uh, uh, was involved in for, uh, much of his New York life, which stretched from uh, about 1950, roughly 1949 to uh, 1968, when he moved to Los Angeles, almost all of his activities occurred in just two small areas. First, growing up was in Brooklyn, and if you had to ask me uh, what would be the one reason why Fisher made this great, great leap, which you alluded to, which is in 19. 55, he played in the U.S. Junior Open in Lincoln, Nebraska, and that was his first tournament away from home, and his performance there for a 12-year boy at the time was quite respectable. He made an even score, and he performed at a level of about 1,700. Well, that's the summer of 55. Now we go three years later, the summer of 1958, and he's in uh, uh, Yugoslavia, and he's, you know, playing in the interzonal, and he's qualified 
the candidates and, you know, I guess, you know, you qualify for the candidates, you're in the top 10 in the world. I mean, you're probably about 2,600. So how did he make that 900 point leap that you mentioned? Uh, well, if I had to give one single name, I would just say Collins and that would be uh, uh, Jack Collins, uh, formerly John Collins. He uh, was a great uh, teacher and mentor to uh, many uh, uh, top American players book uh, called My Seven Chess Prodigies, where he mentions his uh, uh, friendships and uh, with these players, uh, William Lombardi, the Byrne brothers, uh, Raymond Weinstein, uh, you know, Fisher, it goes on. Uh, so it turns out Collins lived within about a mile of Fisher in Brooklyn. And Collins apartment, which he shared with his uh, sister, uh, was about a five-minute walk from Erasmus High School, a very famous high school in Brooklyn that, uh, uh, you know, Barbara Streisand attended there, Neil Diamond, uh, all these famous people, and Bobby Fischer. And uh, uh, what it meant was that, considering that uh, Regina, Bobby's mother, she was always working several jobs. It meant that for a certain extent, for about three years, Bobby probably spent more time, you know, if we don't count sleeping time, at the Collins home than he did at his own home. And so a typical day for Fisher was, you know, he wakes up in the morning, he's, he's going off to, to, to high school, he's attending his classes in the morning. It's now noon. The uh, lunch bell rings. All the other students go off to the uh, to the school lunchroom, but he runs off campus. Probably forbidden these days in the U.S. You know there would be security guards to stop him, but but not then. He uh, he sprinted over to uh, Collins' home, and Collins, uh, like many uh, strong players, was uh, just had just woken up. You know, chess players uh, of uh, high ratings uh, tend to keep different hours than uh, civilians, and so. <laughs> He uh, uh, and Bobby would share a uh, uh, brunch, if you will, and uh, they would play some blitz and they would look at some chess. And then, you know, it would be nearing one o'clock and Bobby would, uh, would run back to, to the high school. He'd stay there for a couple more hours and then he would uh, return back to Collins home. And from three or four in the afternoon until uh, maybe eight or nine in the evening, <clears throat> he would be... Uh, uh, doing all manner of things at Collins Home. Collins Home had another name called the Hawthorne Chess Club after uh, a previous chess club Collins had run on Hawthorne Street. And this club was almost like a sort of a European salon, if you would. There would be uh, people, you know, intellectual uh, fervor uh, ever, ever present. And uh, Collins had a very large library at the time uh, in a variety of languages, um, you know, uh, much more than Bobby could have uh, hoped to find on his own. Uh, there were many strong players that uh, visited on a regular basis. Or uh, uh, players, some only played blitz, other ones played correspondence chess, other ones were interested in chess problems and in-game studies. There was always somebody going in and out of the place. So, uh, you know, Fisher was 
you know, he didn't have the internet, he didn't have the ability to play online, he didn't have the chess databases, but for his time, he, he had pretty much everything he needed. I mean, he could immerse himself in chess. And I think that's sort of the requirement for a player that really wants to get, you know, good quickly is just to immerse themselves in uh, chess. I mean, that, you know, those golden years in your before as a, uh, Alex Shabov, many time US champion, once said, before the cement starts to set in, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, the material exactly. doesn't, <laughs> doesn't come so easily. And so I think that, um, uh, you know, Fisher, you know, he, 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 he was almost just sort of breathing in the air, if you will, uh, you know, in those sort of things. And I know that when I was starting out as a chess player, one of the most uh, incredible activities uh, that I had, I started off playing when I was 14. And uh, by the time I graduated from uh, school, I was uh, 17 and I was maybe about, you know, expert rating 2000. In, during my university studies, I uh, I majored in chess and minored in history. And, uh, <laughs> I found that uh, one of the reasons why I, you know I got over twenty four hundred by that point uh, by the time I graduated, which took six years instead of four, shall we say, because I was interested in chess. Uh, it would be I would go down to this coffee house in Seattle called the Last Exit, and. I was just very lucky. There was a fellow there by the name of Yasser Sarawan, who's lived in Seattle and he's a few years younger. And, uh, you know, I would sit down with him. There would be other people, uh, sometimes Eric Tangborn, a fellow Tacoma Chess Club member who became an international master. Uh, you know, they would just sit down and they would show their games from recent times. And uh, all of us would look at it and we'd make our comments. In the case of Yasser, we mostly listen more than uh, make comments. But you would, you know, you would just learn a lot just from uh, this highly enjoyable process that, you know, uh, uh, that seems to, have, you know, pretty much died off, you know. Nowadays, you know, people can just turn on their computer and uh, receive the truth. But uh, sometimes uh, it's not the whole truth. Uh, and I, I think something's, you know, a little bit missing there in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, the, the postmortems games or the analyzing of the games with friends, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more with the Silicon Oracle, which is pretty understandable, but, but I still think there's some room for, for, for the good old days, if you will. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, 10,000 hours aren't quite as entertaining if you spend them in front of a screen, are they? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. And, and I guess just for you, my, my second question, John, was just really, you know, when you think about Fisher now, what what is your assessment of Fisher, both both the player and, and the man, really, in terms of, you know, what would your take be? You know, it, it, it's tough. You know, I, uh, there, you know, Endgame uh, by Frank Brady really kind of with... Uh, mm. Fisher's later years, you know, and, and they pretty uh, uh, strongly, you know, Brady really thought he had, uh, you know, gone over the deep end. And, uh, and you know, that's, that, you know, it's, it's hard to, you can't just ignore uh, some of the things that he said. Uh, uh, I think that, uh, uh, 
to keep a couple things in perspective, I think one thing to realize, and I, I try to not give the reader a, like an answer, but sort of just present a lot of information and and let them sort of come to their own decision as to where they they, they saw Fisher. Uh, but if you look at him in the 1990s, I mean, I can't think of, uh, of very, very many people that, that suffered as much as he did. I mean, it's clear that, uh, uh, that he was looking for a life partner, that he wanted to start a family, and uh, it, it just didn't quite work out the way that he had hoped for. Um, you know, he played that match in 1992, and, uh, you know, the U.S. government, uh, you know, you know, you know, put out an arrest warrant for him for violating the sanctions. And yet so many other Americans and American companies, they just sort of got around it. You know, they dealt with uh, uh, shell companies set up in Cyprus. And, you know, uh, it was just Fisher was more visible. And he felt he'd sort of gotten shortchanged in 1972 after he won the world championship. You know, he wasn't invited to the White House and, uh, you know, he, you know, he, there were various uh, uh, lawsuits, principally the one with uh, uh, Time Life with the Brad uh, Derrick, uh, uh, you know, book that he felt had, you know, really uh, violated um, basic trust. And he thought that, you know, the U.S. government, you know, well, let's just say he didn't understand the U.S. legal system very well. And blamed the U.S. government for some of the things that happened to him. But to return to the 90s, uh, you know, as a result of that uh, arrest warrant, he wasn't able to come back to the U.S. His uh, mother died. Uh, his uh, sister died. In both cases, he wasn't able to come back for their funeral. So he missed that kind of closure, if you will. He missed, I'm sure, a lot of his friends from New York and Los Angeles days. Uh, of course, there was the, uh, uh, the 60 memorable games, uh, uh, episode where uh, the book was uh, edited, uh, you know. Yeah. Not uh, very well. No, it was, uh, you know, it was a, all these things, I think, and then, and then, of course, the storage locker, where, you know, he, he collected all these possessions over his lifetime, and, uh, and then they were all taken from him, or they were eventually returned to him, but only after, you know, strangers had handled them, and, and he just, all these things, I think, together, along with, uh, shall we say, some uh, unsteadiness, uh, mental unsteadiness, kind of, you know, all these things together, just, you know, I think he, they just kind of crushed him. And so I think in many ways, you know, we, we you know, he deserves some sympathy and respect. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I think, you know, when he made some of those comments about, you know, the people, you know, during 9-11 that they got what was coming to them, all these, you know, civilians in the, you know, in the towers burning to death. I mean, that, you know, that was way beyond the pale. Uh, before that, you know, some of his, his questions that he had about the United States or about the, uh, the Middle East or those sort of things that he, lifelong positions he had prior to that, I might agree with them. I might not agree with them. I think a lot of a lot of other people would be in the same way, but they wouldn't have been like on the far fringe, you know, in, in, in crazy person territory the way they were with uh, his comments after 9/11. So, uh, I, I I don't 
ignore the fact that he did make those comments. But on the other hand, I think that one should take into context to some extent, you know, what happened to him over the last decade that caused him to get to where he was. But as far as a player goes, that's a very interesting question because it seems that for a lot of the chess public, if you ask that question, question of all questions, you know, who's the greatest player of all time? Uh, Stockfish, right? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I would say that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very short list and it's, uh, you know, in no particular order. I'll just use chronological order. It's uh, Fisher, Kasparov, <clears throat> and Carlson. And, uh, you know, there might be some supporters for Lasker, there might be some supporters for uh, Morphy, but I would say in the case of Morphy, the problem was that there's just insufficient information. The career was too short. Uh, you know, there's not a, a good body of uh, 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 games to make a judgment, and it's so far, far back. But what one can say is that Morphy was clearly, with all apologies to uh, the Englishman I'm speaking to here, he was the strongest player. I mean, he, you know, if he had played Staunton, he was definitely yeah, a defeat. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and in the case of, uh, of, of Lasker, it's a bit trickier uh, because, you know, he, he, he only lost the title, you know, when he, you know, when, when he was in his 50s, you know, against uh, Capablanca, you know, uh, I think that conditions were not so well suited for him for playing a match in Havana, although it was played late in the evening to try to mitigate the you know, climate issues, but still, I mean, he, he would have lost a couple long, I think under no matter what, but that was, you know, it took a long, long time, but the problem is that there were long periods where he didn't play. There just weren't that many big tournaments those days, you know, really, really, you know, I almost kind of put him in more uh, shoes in that sense that it's just kind of impossible to compare him to players now, but the case of Fisher and Kasparov and Carlson, I think you can, can compare them. They're all, you know, post-World War II players. And I think uh, in the case of Fisher, you know, you do have this, uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, comparing like uh, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin, you know, all <laughs> that died before their, their time, you know, with other great uh, rock and rollers. I think that it's, it's pretty pretty hard because in the case of Fisher, certainly he lived much longer than, than those three, but he, he didn't play. I mean, I mean, all right, he played the 92 match. But he, he didn't really play that much after, after winning the title. And I mean, there are various reasons perhaps to explain why he didn't, but uh, I think all one can say is that between 1970 and 72, he dominated uh, his uh, contemporaries like no other player or since. And, you know, it's, it's somewhat magnified also by the fact that uh, the world was a much smaller place then. There were fewer things competing for people's attention. And there was that you know, East-West, uh, you know, American-Soviet rivalry. So it kind of all mm. in this kind of a magic uh, time capsule, if you will. Uh, as far as uh, Kasparov goes, you know, incredible record for a very long time, but with this one blemish and, you know, the, you know, the lost to Kramnik and it isn't so much he lost to Kramnik, but it's almost like he, 
he just wasn't himself in that match. I mean, he, uh, you know, he ran into the Berlin Wall. You know, you would have thought that maybe he would have ducked playing E4 and he would have played anything else, you know, but he, he didn't. And uh, uh, as a result, you know, he didn't win a single game. And, and not only did he not win a single game in the match, but several occasions towards the end of the match with White, he basically just, you know, made short draws. So that's, you know, kind of a serious mark against him. I think that uh, if Magnus Carlsen defends his title successfully one or two more times, I would, I would have to say his record's probably better than Kasparov's. I mean, that's really saying a lot, but I mean, I would say that there's certainly a lot more good players now. I would say that, that uh, the playing field in terms of opening preparation is a lot more equal. I mean, everyone has access to strong computers. Uh, you know, uh, you don't need to have a team behind you to kind of, you know, help you out. I mean, Kasparov uh, had like this, I mean, he was by no means a one-dimensional player. I mean, that would be a, a great disservice to him, but he did have like this amazing serve, you know, hard serve, and then he would just, you know, follow it up, you know, really, he'd get the initial pound it through. Uh, but you look at Magnus, and it just seems like he has more varied tool set, you know, I mean, he, you know, he, he has an advantage or he doesn't have advantage and he just keeps plugging away. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, so that's sort of my take on it. I think if you, uh, had to pick an absolutely dominant player for his time, I mean, Bobby would be my bet, but for overall career, knock on wood, Magnus is successful. I mean, you know, the next defense or two, I'd, I'd have to give it to him, I think. Wow, that's fascinating. What would you say, Adam? <laughs> well, I, I use um, Morphe's games quite a lot when I'm teaching. And uh, the problem with Morphe was that he, he, he definitely lacked quality opposition. You know, he found it quite hard to find players of his own caliber. So he was so far ahead of his contemporaries, it's difficult to, to compare. I mean, I know Nathan Davinsky once wrote a book where he compared um, players historically and, and used statistics to try and compare them but I don't I don't think for me that that really works um but I agree with John that that as far as the quality of opposition goes um Magnus seems to be to, to continue the uh, tennis analogy he seems to be serving underhand and he's still he's still winning tournaments and that that is a really amazing thing to see in, in if you think about um what's available to modern players and the quality the consistency of modern play that is uh, remarkable. So I agree. I agree. Whether whether he'll successfully defend his title is, you know, it's all it's history yet to be written. Yes, but uh, we'll know soon enough. You know who his, uh, his challenger will be. You know, in uh, you know the next month, uh, Ekaterinburg will sort it out. Yeah. One of the details, John, in your book, which I thought was fascinating. I mean, obviously Fisher would have won anyway, but when he played Tamanov and you know, he won six 0 and I, I think it was with Tamanov actually. You mentioned that Tamanov was um trying to save save on food, but yeah, and, and I just thought, you know, you're up against the Soviet machine in all his all in all his mastery, and yet there's this this thing that they kind of haven't factored in with that their player might be like not eating properly, and I mean, how on earth? How does that happen? I mean, it's just incredible. You know, 
one of the things I really regret uh, uh, in writing this book is I had so many opportunities to uh, talk to certain people. And I had the, the very good fortune, I played a tournament in Wales in the uh, late 1990s. And I uh, played and lost a very nice game against uh, Mark Timonov. And uh, I should have asked, you know, but the thing is, this information, uh, which was provided, I believe, by Evgeny Vasilyukov, who is one of uh, uh, Tamanov's seconds, uh, it only surfaced, you know, uh, this century. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't in the public at, at the time. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that that match in Vancouver, uh, well, first off, to possibly explain Tamanov's uh, motivations, uh, opportunities for uh, uh, Soviet players to travel to North America at that time would have been extremely, you know, in part by the fact that there just weren't that many significant held in the United States or Canada. Uh, Hermanov had visited New York in the 50s when there was one of the uh, USA-USSR matches in 1954. So he had been to, to the United States. I don't think he had been to Canada before that. Uh, it is kind of surprising how, you know, unprofessional, if you will, the uh, Soviets' uh, preparation for the match was. I mean, one thing that they kind of underestimated, and I think that's somewhat true of a lot of European players, is that, uh, you know, we in, uh, especially from the West Coast of the United States, we know that, uh, you know, when you travel to Europe, uh, you, you definitely want to arrive and take into account uh, jet lag. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it can, can be like crippling uh, when you first first stumble off the plane, having missed sleep in your, your circadian, all out of whack. But, you know, going back the other way, it's a little less, uh, you know, straightforward. I mean, you, you don't miss a night's sleep, but still it kind of unsettles you. And, and Taimanov was definitely a, the older player in the match. And so I think, you know, he, you know, would have been, wise to have arrived like you know a week to 10 days beforehand just to to get adjusted uh, but my understanding is he just came a, a few days before the match and you know that probably wasn't i mean he was helped to some extent by the fact that there was uh delays in the start because of negotiations over the playing site but still you know i could imagine that he uh, wasn't quite a hundred percent it would have influenced the, the match result, not at all, but it would have made it a little more respectable. And and every chess player, I think, who knows, who's, for example, been you know, in bad form and playing in a round-robin tournament or a match where, you know, you're you're obligated to stay the course, if you will, you know, you you, you lose a terrible game and uh, you're playing your mind uh, all night and you're tossing and you arrive the next day at the board and you're... Uh, you have not rested well and uh, you're playing against who's confident and gathering strength from win after win and and it tends to uh, snowball uh as far as the uh the food i mean that you know there's prize money from the match mm -hmm. and there's also uh the uh, uh the stipend that they, they, they would or the uh you know the expense money the organizers would have provided and for a player from the soviet union having access to hard currency was a very uh, attractive proposition and it was not uncommon for uh 
for Soviet chess players who had those opportunities to travel abroad to know the shoe sizes of their uh, second cousin. Uh, I'm maybe exaggerating slightly, but the point is anybody that was near and dear to them, they would have a list of uh, of items that, you know, that they would try to acquire for these people, you know, just basic things in the West that we wouldn't think twice about, but like a, a proper pair of shoes, for example, might be extremely hard to come by, no matter who you were in the former Soviet Union, in, in the Soviet Union, I should say. And so, uh, you know, it was quite common that, that you know, they would uh, stockpile as much hard currency as possible. I mean, Taimanov, uh, sad to say, wouldn't have been the first uh, player uh, to do that. I remember uh, Lubash Kavalik telling me about, and, and other American players that were involved with uh, uh, world uh, student team competitions, uh, how, you know, players from Eastern Europe would usually bring things like uh, sausages with them, you know, things that would travel well and, you know, and, and types of bread so that they wouldn't need to spend uh, uh, money on food when they were there, and they could instead, you know, uh, maximize their purchasing power uh, consumer goods instead. Uh, so fortunately, this is uh, something I think that's long in the past, uh, but it, it, it is kind of amazing. One thing I just recently learned that I didn't include in the book was, uh, and I, it only sort of hit me after a while, was, uh, and, and through reading some letters that I saw at the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis, which has a very extensive Fisher collection, uh, was that uh, Ed Edmondson, who was uh, Fisher's man, if you will, at the time, uh, they break up before the uh, match was Spassky. He uh, was writing in uh, the spring of 1971 that he couldn't find Fisher. And it turns out that, you know, Fisher, of course, he played the Interzonal in November of 1970. We know a couple simuls that he gave in Madrid in December of that year. But it turns out he was hanging out in Spain all the way up until a year or two before the match in, uh, in Vancouver. And, you know, I think he probably appreciated the weather and the food. And, but I think mostly just he wouldn't have any distractions. He wouldn't have any friends trying to visit him or anything. He would just, you know, kind of leave this Fisher monastic chest study routine and without disturbance. Uh, it happened again after Vancouver. Again, you know, uh, Edmondson was expecting to see Fisher in New York or perhaps in Los Angeles, which he had, had moved to by that point. But uh, according to uh, the letter from Ed Edmondson, uh, uh, Fisher spent like three weeks in Vancouver after the match. And, uh, you know, literally, I don't even know if he went to New York or, or Los Angeles before he stepped off the plane in Denver. He might have come straight from Vancouver, possibly. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are always new little tidbits to learn about Fisher. But, uh, uh, he liked to get into his uh, study mode. You know, I think, uh, you know, he, 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 I think if you had to point to his greatest possible talent, I mean, certainly he had tremendous vision. Certainly he had a, a killer spirit, to, you know, to, uh, you know, you know, didn't accept short draws under pretty much any circumstances. But if I had to point to just one thing that made Fisher such a great player, it was just his, takes a little bit of talent, that goes without saying, but I would say the other thing is uh, he just had this incredible capacity to study. You know, he just, he, he, you know, he didn't cut corners. He really put in the time.
yeah, he got into the zone. Definitely. Yes. What they what modern psychologists call um, flow. He definitely he definitely knew how to focus. I mean, today we have so many distractions. I've seen I've seen some younger players preparing for tournaments, and um, it's just basically flicking through thousands of games on chess base at very very high speed, which um, you know it takes your breath away. It does. It does. I mean, it's uh, uh, but I think that for the the average chess players still now, I think that books still very much have a place in uh, the scheme of things. And one funny thing about the, uh, you know, there's been a lot of incredibly sad things, you know, that have happened over the last year uh, because of the pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, the number of people who lost their lives or had their health severely impaired or who, who died prematurely, if you will, uh, because, you know, they felt isolated or, or, you know, the psychologically it was a stressful condition to deal with. But for chess players, I think there's been a lot to be thankful for. And there were just, you know, incredible number of uh, good books that were produced in the, uh, uh, the last, uh, the last year. I mean, it's just uh, a real bumper crop. And one of the things that you, you saw was a lot of really top top players i'm i'm talking about players over 2700 writing books you know uh like hari krishna i think had a book on the white side of the french for uh, thinkers publishing and you know sham shanklin came out with several books for you know in the last he maybe anticipated a little bit but but he did work for chessable as well uh, uh boris gelfand of course you know uh, several you know really outstanding books for quality chess uh so you, you saw all these really strong players and even Wesley So and uh, 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 Mickey Adams, uh, you know, were two, they partnered up with uh, uh, Graham Burgess and with uh, John Nunn for a puzzle book for uh, uh, Gambit. Uh, I just don't see a lot of those people like Wesley So he would never have time in the schedule, you know, I mean, mm. I, I mean, I can't think of any books Mickey Adams, maybe he did those books long ago with his father, but, but, but since then, you know, I, you know, you know, mostly he plays, I mean, and he plays incredibly well. Uh, so as a result of the pandemic, <clears throat> with limited opportunities to play, I mean, you, you see these guys doing other things and also the, the teaching. I, uh, I played in one or two online events and uh, in one of them, uh, there was a little technical delay. So I actually had a chance to, to look at my opponent's games and, and prepare, if you will. And uh, if we can call that what, what I was doing, uh, getting myself into a, a worse position out of the opening. I'm not sure where the preparation went, but uh, <laughs> be that as it may, uh, what I was struck by was that uh, my opponent, uh, who's a young, you know, 13 year old player, he actually played uh, some, uh, some blitz tournament with Boris Gelfand. And I was thinking, I mean, well, this would just, you know, never have happened, you know, pre-pandemic, but because of uh, all these possibilities to play online, a lot of these strong players showed up in venues you would never see them otherwise. And also a lot of these really great players like Gelfand, Pakalov and Kramnik, you see them giving these uh, online uh, master classes. Yeah. And when you think it's these kind of guys, Master class sounds like you know uh, undersell. You know, I mean, these guys are you know, uh, you know some of the greatest players of all time. So, uh, so it has you know there have been some 
some blessings in, 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 this, in, this, in this pandemic. That's good. That will be a legacy of the pandemic, I think. Some some really good books because people have had more time to develop their ideas. What's the right. What's the chess scene going to be like going going forward? You know, post pandemic in the U.S. Do you think? Well, you know, uh, uh, sort of touching upon what I just did and answering this question, uh, it it keeps me in mind. There's a, a a website called the Perpetual Chess Podcast, and in there there was Lawrence Trent. They they had the series, <laughs> uh, you know, on the road to grandmastership, and they had like three different individuals. And uh, I wish them all the best. On their journey, I don't know if they'll uh, uh, arrive at the station, but I think they'll have uh, uh, a good time, you know, in studying and playing and preparing. And and you know, I, I think they're in a situation where they can't lose. I think that uh, uh, if they're successful, I mean, it'll be it'll be brilliant. But even if they don't, if they're not, I think uh, it'll it'll be you know. It's all about the journey. Yes, very much so, yeah. and. Uh, the thing was, though, Lawrence, uh, he said, you know, I'm, he, he was talking, you know, and everything was like, uh, you know, how I'm going to prepare and how I'm going to get a coach. You know, I've got one and I'm going to do all these different things and I'm going to be more focused and going to eat better and exercise more and all these things. And then he mentions, he mentioned this one thing, you know, so those all seem like, you know, very straightforward things that, you know, would be on everybody's list. And then he mentioned, he says, I might be wise in choosing some of my tournaments. Uh, you know, so, but rest assured listeners, I mean, he's not talking about playing in some, you know, uh, uh, jerry rigged tournament in some uh, obscure location with a capital city that you're unfamiliar with. Not at all. What he, he's not talking about anything nefarious. What he's talking about is that I, and I think it's a very real uh, concern is that after uh, COVID, you know, you've got all these uh, vertically uh, challenged angels mm -hmm. just angels who are uh, have spent the better part of uh, a year uh, locked up uh, playing online studying nonstop, taking lessons from all these you know uh, great teachers and uh, uh, well their brains are are, are, are are still in that very uh, malleable favorable uh, uh, state for absorbing chess information so I didn't think the net result is that uh, uh, you know Anytime you see any player that's like under 18 years of old and he sits down to play when they start overboard play, add 100 points to the minimum. Because they're going to be that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm afraid that uh, talking about players of my generation uh, <laughs> can't say the same. No, it's interesting you should say that because I noticed the same thing when the, the Soviet Union um, collapsed and uh, Virtually any any ex-Soviet player that you saw, their rating was uh, maybe they'd be twenty three hundred, but they were playing at twenty four hundred easily, and uh, I, I can see exactly that phenomenon happening uh, as I'm as I'm watching tournaments in the UK. I can see that happening already. You know, the kids are, the kids have had a year in the laboratory, you know, growing. Yes. So I think one thing that I I, I do think that had already started to. Uh... Uh, get going and I think that will blossom further is I think you will see more senior only tournaments in uh, or you know, age based tournaments which I sort of have mixed feelings about uh, when I was playing at the Tacoma Chess Club when I started off in the early 70s one of the nicest things about the tournaments was this broad age span and of course then it was 
many more adults and fewer junior players. Uh, you know, maybe the, the, the seesaw is tilted the other way now, uh, but, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, it is one of the great things about chess is that, you know, you can have players of all ages competing at the same time. So, uh, and, the, and they do have, you know, obviously the rating system does have some, FIDE system in particular has some, uh, you know, pay factor is, is pretty high for, for junior players. Uh, but still, there is that element. If I looked at chess in the United States right now, I mean, it is really a golden time uh, for a variety of reasons. I think that uh, uh, our Olympiad team that we send to Moscow, knock on wood, in uh, 2022 uh, will be uh, a pretty reasonable team to, to uh, try to do my best in protection of uh, understated Britishmen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the, the right now, the way the rating system is set up, uh, Hikaru Nakamura is our reserve player, you know, at 27. That's 40. amazing to think of. Just incredible. Yes. It's, it's funny, John, we had on, we had Evan, Evan Rabin on the podcast recently. We were talking about this a little bit with him and obviously with, you know, Aronian and stuff coming across to the US. And I mean, how, how do you, how do you feel about stuff like that? Because on the one hand, amazing that you've got a new elite player but on the other hand is somebody else missing out because of that i mean what, what that's was a very good that's a very good question and i think that i mean sort of to 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 back up a second i mean the united states for better or for worse is is sort of great experiment you know we have people all over the world coming to it and you don't have you know it's not like the united it's not like hungary is for hungarians or romania is for Romanians. the united states is this Great melting pot, and uh, uh, sometimes the uh, too many spices get thrown in, or maybe the uh, the uh, pot isn't stirred sufficiently. <laughs> There's kind of a bumpy road, but that is our basic idea. And uh, I think that uh, you know when you think of somebody like Levon Aronian coming to the United States, it seems kind of like a real shocker. But the thing to keep in mind is that outside of Armenia, uh, you know maybe. I, I think there's probably even more Armenians living in Southern California than there are in France, which is another, you know, center of the diaspora for, uh, for Armenians. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, personal circum tragedy, the experience, the loss of his wife, I mean, uh, very warm reception that he's received in St. Louis. Uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, he's got a lot of friends in the United States. His first coach, Melek Pachin, lives in, in uh, Southern California. I think that uh, if he was looking for another home, uh, the United States was quite a logical one for him. And, uh, you know, I know he still takes his chest incredibly seriously, and, but he, on the other hand, is reaching his late 30s. So, if you will, for, you know, for reaching the top spot in chess, you know, the clock ticking as far as that goes. Uh, also, you know, the political situation in Armenia, it's, it's not good. I mean, to put it mildly, I mean, I'm sure all your listeners are aware the what happened in the battle with Azerbaijan this last year. Uh, so, uh, you know, ultimately it's his own personal decision to make and, uh, and, and he's certainly very welcome, you know, in the United States. Uh, he's a very, very nice person as well as a really good player. So, uh, uh, you know, he'll be a definite asset 
in many ways for American chess. But uh, what you mentioned, Ben, uh, it's true. I mean, if you look at the United States chess scene only a, a decade ago, our bench, if you will, was uh, relatively shallow. Uh, I mean, you know, we could not put up six players or five players, I should say now, because they only have one reserve player, uh, rated over 2,600. Uh, and that was the case until, you know, the mid teens, uh, you know, maybe 2014 things, 2016, definitely things had changed. But even in 2014, uh, we were probably only rated like, you know, maybe like sixth or seventh in the Olympiads. I mean, we had Hikara and we had Gonikomsky, who were both world-class players. We had also had Alex Onashuk, who, you know, reached 2,700, very, very steady team player, but wasn't ever one of like, you know, the top 10 or top 15 players in the world. Uh, so, you know, we definitely had a sort of team that if we, if everything went perfectly, uh, we could medal in the Olympiad, which we did in 2006 in uh, Turn and 2008 in Dresden and 2009 slash 10 in the uh, world team. Uh, we were, were silver medalists uh, and we did that one even without goddess. So, so definitely, you know, we had players like Yuri Shulman that, you know, you know, that were very strong, but but now we have so many good players. Let's say that the, the big five who, you know, I mean, uh, uh, just in rating order would be, uh, you know, Fabiano and uh, Levon and uh, Wesley and uh, Linear and uh, 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 Hikaru. Uh, right after that, we have Jeffrey Zhang, who's over 2,700 and who's, you know, just out of his teens. The thought that we would have a player rated over 2,700 that wouldn't be playing on the Olympiad team. I mean, that would just be kind of mind boggling. But not only, we also have Sam Shanklin who has been about 2730, who just before the pandemic was playing consistently at 2700. And I think his, his ratings may be like 2693 or somewhere thereabout, but who, who definitely is a 2700 player. Uh, that Those guys would not be on the team but it doesn't end there because uh, right after them, we have uh, Sam Sevy, we have Ray Robson, who's like about 2680, who, uh, you know, in any other country, he'd be playing board one practically. He's played many times and, and quite successfully for the US team and team competitions. And who, you know, in, 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 he's, he's, you know, in his, in his late twenties, but still, you know, really, you know, a very fine player and, and, and still with room to improve. Uh, we have Sam Sevian, who uh, again is just leaving his, his teen uh, years and he's uh, rated in the top 50, 60 in the world thereabouts. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that our second team uh, probably averages, I don't know, 2675 feet. It would probably be seated maybe close to, if not in the top 10 in, at the Olympiad. And, you know, would be a team that would be have a chance to fight for medals. Mm -hmm. Favorite, but would definitely have a chance. And if, if successful, it wouldn't be like a stunning surprise. So, uh, you know, why is, why is all this happen? And if I had uh, one word to say, it would be the king, you know, i.e. Rex, as in uh, Rex Sinkfield. He, uh, in his 
wife, uh, Jeannie Sinkfeld, they've just done amazing things for American chess. I mean, Rex, you know, has been a game changer. Uh, and I, I shudder to think what American chess would be like without him and his wife. I mean, they've been incredibly generous. And it isn't just a matter of being generous in terms of uh, financially, but also in terms of their ideas and in terms of uh, uh, their just passion for, for, for the game. And when I say like ideas, one of the things that is uh, always a sore spot for uh, most countries is that you have young players coming up and they're, they're improving and they're improving and they get to about 2,600 and, you know, you know, very high standard, but, but nowadays just uh, they've, they've earned their, uh, their, uh, uh, their undergraduate degree in chess, if you will, uh, at the high level and they need to go further. The problem is that quite high rated enough in most cases to play in closed tournaments uh, and continuing to play in the tournaments that got them to where they were, a lot of you know big opens and things uh, doesn't necessarily bring out the best in their chest because they're, they're typically playing down most if not all of the tournament. And so one of the things that uh, uh, St. Louis and you know that that Rex really realized it was important was a series of you know of, of regular like you know every three or four months um, uh, these uh, strong wrong robin invitational events uh, that you know American players you know between 26 and 2700 play in, and uh, I think that's done a lot to uh, to raise the level of uh, of American chess. I think we now have maybe we're coming up close on on having 20 players rated over 600, which if you live in Russia would be no big deal, but anywhere else in the world, except for, you know, maybe Ukraine has a, a pretty deep bench as well, but, but not quite so much the number of high flyers that the U.S. does, but, you know, it's, it's just really stepped things up. So I think that uh, St. Louis, I think also St. Louis has been a key part of the, uh, uh, of the cooking, not only for the, uh, for what's going on at the world, uh, at, at the St. Louis Chess Club, but also uh, uh, just outside of the city, uh, there's uh, Webster University that uh, Susan Polgar is involved with, and Paul Long. And then inside the city, there's a university that uh, Alejandro Ramirez runs the chess program there. And uh, both those schools see a large number of foreign young players uh, studying there. Mm. You know, the days when those players would, uh, you know, quickly change their affiliation to the United States and, uh, uh, upon graduation and, and, and become involved with American chess. Those are kind of mixed now. A lot of them just come to get their degrees. Uh, because for one thing, those players can change their affiliation, but the U.S. championship is so strong that just because you're rated 26-25, you're not going to be playing in the U.S. championship. Yeah. You won't be one of the top 12. And uh, uh, But what those players do do is they spend at least four years in the U.S. and they often are playing in uh, uh, some of the larger uh, Swiss tournaments in the United States, which have become significantly stronger. I mean, nobody tries to earn their living from playing in big opens in the U.S. I mean, it'd just be impossible. There's just too many good players. Uh, but these guys are getting scholarships to study, you know, to study and study and play chess. We'll phrase it that way. Uh, and uh, and they're everywhere. They're like there's several in Texas. Uh, and, and usually they have like very strong grandmasters associated with them. Alex Onishuk is the uh, 
coach at Texas Tech. Uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure if he's still there or not, but uh, the Polish Grandmaster Mateja was at uh, the University of Texas at Brownsville. Uh, they're in University of Baltimore at Maryland. I mean, they're just everywhere. And uh, so there's a lot more strong players playing U.S. And what this has done also is uh, it used to be that uh, organizing uh, norm tournaments in the U.S. was just incredibly difficult. You know, you would have to fly players to Europe. And uh, uh, if you wanted to, for example, have a, uh, uh, a large open that was held over, you know, seven to nine days, uh, to offer normal opportunities, it would be very, very difficult because you just wouldn't have enough foreign grandmasters or IMs or foreign players mm -hmm. playing. Now it's, it's quite easy. Uh, so things have changed in that regard as well. Uh, the U.S. Chess Federation, which is based in Crosville, uh, Tennessee, uh, they are probably, you know, as well organized as they've been in the history of the organization, which goes back to 1930. And what I mean by that is they... They do the things that they can do, and they do them well. They they run a lot of large national scholastic tournaments. They produce the national magazine, uh, but they also are are smart enough to uh, to divvy up the work because there's so much to do in American chess that it would be uh, impossible for any single organization to tackle it by themselves. And so, you know, things like the U.S. Championship and the U.S. Women's Championship and the U.S. Junior Championship uh, and the U.S. Senior Championship, uh, they're all held in St. Louis. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're almost all the, uh, the coaching that's done in the U.S. It's not by the, uh, it's through, through the USCF. It's done uh, through organizations like uh, the St. Louis Chess Club or uh, the Kasparov uh, Chess Foundation, or it's done through Greg Shahadi, who uh, was the, uh, you know, he's got the uh, U.S. Chess School, and he also has, uh, he's involved with the Pro Chess League. Uh, prior to that was the U.S. Chess League. So there are all these individuals that are doing all these different things in American chess now, and uh, the the USCF is the centerpiece of that in the, in the sense that it's a professional organization, but there are a lot of uh, uh, players that are playing an important role. And uh, I mean, I've been a USCF member since 72 and chess right now has definitely been as good as it is, you know, it, it let the good times roll on there now. <laughs> it sounds like a golden age for US chess. I would say so. I mean, there are some things that when I look back over close to 50 years involved with the game, I would say are, are not as good. I would say one is that maybe it just reflects my age. I mean, I mean, maybe, you know, uh, younger players today, uh, for them, you know, they live their life electronically, uh, you know, their chess club, their chess scene all, all online. Uh, so I do, to some extent, uh, uh, bemoan the, uh, the, the uh, brick and mortar chess club. I've been fortunate. Uh, you know, I worked for the Mechanics Institute uh, uh, Chess Club, and you know, still going strong since '54, and 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 thriving even under the pandemic, under the able uh, leadership of uh, Abel uh, Talamantes and uh, Judith Sari. But uh, you know, all cities have not been so lucky. 
and uh, of course there's the St. Louis Chess Club, but there, but there are surprises. And uh, I mentioned some of the other uh, uh, active, some of the other centers for chess, if you will, uh, both the Charlotte Chess Center, which has been holding norm tournaments during the pandemic. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. I'd be I'd be too afraid to do that. You know, my age. Yeah, me too. And to travel across the country, uh, but you know, there's young players and uh, uh, brave young players that have, have been playing regularly. And I'm sure I've not heard of any negative uh, uh, experiences experiences them hosting the tournament. So power to them. Also, uh, in uh, the greater Seattle area, there's the Pacific Northwest Chess Center, and uh, it's you know organized by a bunch of, of, of Microsoft workers whose children, you know, dads uh, and their children are, are keen chess enthusiasts. And they've held all these tournaments online during the pandemic that, you know, have attracted, you know, I think that, uh, you know, future generations will wonder how did all these Ukrainian players end up, you know, playing all these tournaments in Seattle? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the year and then everything will become clear that, you know, these yeah. guys never have never and never will be in Seattle, but they, they, they play a lot online. Yeah, John, it's been amazing talking to you. I think I think we're going to have to have a um, a take two as well. We're going to have to have a rematch Definitely. and uh, speak to you again. It's been fantastic talking to you, and um, good luck with your book. I think um, it's going to be a bestseller. Well, you're very kind, and uh, I, I guess the one last thing I would say in closing is that what I was trying to do with this book was not just focus on on Fisher, but also try to capture uh, time. And uh, you know, it, you know, yes, Bobby did. You know, it, it was it was my way, if you will, for him. But uh, but it was. But there were a lot of people that played an important role in his life, nonetheless. And so, and and they were important for American chess at the time. And so, I I, I really tried to get that to come through as well. Yeah, that is an absolutely outstanding achievement, John. And you know, wonderful to talk to you today. <laughs> Well, thank, thank you ever so much, John. Did you organize the like uh, Golders Green? That's right. Oh, that's amazing. So Golders Green is famous the world over. Well, I think I, I don't know if I ever played in one, but I may have, you know, when I was in London, I may have dropped by one of the tournaments. Oh, that would, yeah, well, they, they were, they have been going. I like to speak of them as if they're going to continue, um, but, you know, you never know. Um, but they have been going for a long time, so it's very possible. When were you in? Were you, when were you in London? It would have been, gosh. Uh, were you running them as early as like 1987? Probably, probably. They were in a little. It would even have been in the 80s or 90s. Hall. Yeah, it could have, been, could yeah. have been in the 90s as well. I have been doing yeah. them for a long time. I'm, I'm uh, 54 now, and I've been doing tournaments since I was about. 20 so yeah it could easily could easily be if you're a premium subscriber to my newsletter imaginatively titled the chess circuit you can suggest guests and topics for future episodes and enjoy many more yet to be conceived perks you can find the link to my newsletter in the show notes thanks for listening